episode of our Neurology Revision Series. I'm Bharadwaj and I'm currently a junior doctor working in the East Midlands. So if you remember, last time we spoke about how to do the upper limb neurological examination. Today we're going to pick up where we left off and talk about the lower limb neuro exam and cerebellar exam. You'll be pleased to hear that the general structure and components of the lower limb exam is the same as for the upper limb, so today's episode should be more straightforward. As before, you're going to be needing a tendon hammer to test the reflexes, a 128Hz tuning fork to test vibration sense, cotton wool to test fine touch, and a neuro tip to assess pain. Remember our wipe mnemonic to begin. Wash your hands, introduce yourself to the patient, position the patient appropriately, and explain the examination and obtain consent. For the purpose of the lower limb exam, you're going to want the patient to be reclined at 30 to 45 degrees on the examination couch and exposed from the waist down, so that they're in their underwear or wearing a pair of shorts. Again, start with a general inspection from the end of the bed, as well as any paraphernalia by the bedside suggestive of neurological disease, such as walking aids for example. Then go on to perform a closer inspection of each leg in turn. Remember our whiffed mnemonic from last episode? Comment on the presence of any muscle wasting, involuntary movements, fasciculations, and tremor. Part of the lower limb exam is to assess the patient's gait. To do this, simply ask the patient to walk to the end of the room and then turn and walk back. Make sure to walk with the patient as they do this, since they may be unsteady on their feet or at risk of falling. Pay attention to the patient's speed, symmetry, balance, and arm swing. You may observe a broad-based ataxic gait, with patients veering towards the side of the lesion and exhibiting difficulty in turning in the context of cerebellar disease, for example. Similarly, you may note a shuffling or festinating gait, with an absent arm swing in the context of Parkinson's disease. You should also ask the patient to walk with their heels to their toes, known as tandem gait, which is useful to look for cerebellar and sensory ataxia. Romberg's test is a special test you can do that helps to distinguish between cerebellar ataxia and sensory ataxia, which occurs due to impaired proprioception or vestibular function. Essentially, the test relies on the premise that in order to maintain balance while standing, individuals require any two out of three of preserved vision, preserved proprioception, and preserved vestibular function. So by asking the patient to close their eyes, an inability to remain balanced in the absence of visual input, implies impaired proprioception or vestibular function. To perform the test, ask the patient to bring their feet together, keep their arms by their side and close their eyes. Remember to be within arm's reach of the patient to support them should they feel unsteady. If on doing this the patient is observed to fall or lose balance, this is known as a positive Romberg sign and is suggestive of sensory ataxia, i.e. impaired proprioception or vestibular dysfunction. Causes of impaired proprioception include vitamin B12 deficiency, Parkinson's disease, as well as aging, whilst causes of vestibular dysfunction include vestibular neuronitis and Meniere's disease. Importantly, if the patient is observed to sway on performing Romberg's test, as opposed to losing balance, this is not a positive result, but is actually more suggestive of truncal ataxia, as seen in cerebellar disease. So, as with the upper limb exam, the next thing to do is to assess the tone. Whilst asking the patient to keep their legs as relaxed as possible, roll each leg to assess the tone in the muscles responsible for rotation of the hip. 
Next, lift each knee briskly off the bed and allow it to fall back onto the bed. You should expect that the heel remains in contact with the bed as the knee rises. If there is increased tone, you may expect to see the heel lift off the bed along with the knee. You might want to hit pause at this point and go back to the last episode on the upper limb exam for a quick recap on spasticity versus rigidity in the context of hypertonia. When assessing tone, you should also observe for ankle clonus, which may be suggestive of upper motor neuron lesions such as stroke or MS. With the patient's knee and ankle slightly flexed, rapidly dorsiflex and partially evert the foot to stretch the gastrocnemius muscle. Clonus may then be felt as rhythmic beats of alternating plantar and dorsiflexion. If there are more than five beats of clonus, this would be classed as an abnormal finding. To assess the power in the lower limbs, you should use the MRC grading scale we spoke about in the last episode. Remember, it's important to stabilize and isolate the muscle group you're assessing and examine each side in turn. As before, the movements test a range of nerves and muscles, so you might want to think about revising the myotomes and muscles of the lower limbs. So to assess hip flexion, ask the patient to lift their leg up off the bed as you apply downward resistance. To assess hip extension, place your hand under their thigh and ask them to resist you pushing upwards. So you could say, okay, Mr. Smith, please lift your leg up off the bed and don't let me push down. Now I'm going to place my hand under your thigh and don't let me lift your leg up. To assess knee flexion, ask the patient to flex their knees whilst keeping their feet flat on the bed. Then attempt to extend each knee in turn by pulling their lower leg towards you whilst asking them to resist. To assess knee extension, with their knees still flexed and feet on the bed, place your hand on their anterior shin and ask them to attempt to extend their knee and straighten their leg as you apply resistance to stop them doing so. So you could say, okay, Mr. Smith, if you could please bend your knees for me and keep your feet on the bed. Now, don't let me pull your leg towards me. Now try and straighten your leg whilst I try to stop you. To assess ankle dorsiflexion, with the patient's leg flat against the bed, ask them to dorsiflex their foot as you apply resistance and try to push their foot downwards. To assess plantar flexion, ask them to plantar flex their foot as you apply resistance and try to pull their foot upwards. So for this, you could say, please put your legs flat against the bed and cock your foot back and don't let me push it down. Now point your foot downwards and don't let me pull it up. The last movement to assess is big toe extension, which very simply involves asking the patient to extend their big toe whilst you apply resistance and try to push their toe down. So the instruction for this could be something like, now if you could point your big toe towards your head and don't let me push it down. Remember last time we spoke about how the pattern of muscle weakness varies in the case of upper and lower motor neuron lesions. The main thing to add here is that in the case of upper motor neuron lesions, the weakness you'll recall typically presents in a pyramidal pattern. That is to say, extensors are weaker than the flexors in the upper limb, but the flexors weaker than the extensors in the lower limb. Once you've assessed the power, move on to examining the tendon reflexes. One thing I forgot to mention last episode was that you can ask the patient to perform a reinforcement manoeuvre, such as clenching their teeth together, at the same time as tapping on the tendon, which sometimes makes it easier to elicit the reflex. So the main reflexes in the lower limb are the knee jerk reflex, which remember assesses L3 and 4, 
the ankle jerk assessing S1 and 2, and the plantar reflex, which looks at L5 and S1. To check the knee jerk reflex, ask the patient to fully relax their leg. You could either ask them to hang their leg off the side of the bed, or support the weight of the leg by placing your arm under their knee. Tap over the patella tendon with your tendon hammer and observe for contraction of the tendon and a reflexive extension of the knee. To elicit the ankle jerk reflex, ask the patient to abduct their hip, flex their knee and dorsiflex their ankle. Tap over the Achilles tendon and observe for contraction of the gastrocnemius muscle with a reflexive plantar flexion of the foot. And lastly, to assess for the plantar reflex, run a stick, so usually the sharp end of the tendon hammer, against the plantar surface of the patient's foot. Start at the heel and then run the stick against the lateral aspect of the foot towards the base of the little toe and then turn medially across the transverse arch of the foot under the toes. Needless to say, warn the patient that it might be a bit uncomfortable. A normal result would be flexion of all five toes. An abnormal result, known as Babinski's sign and seen classically in upper motor neuron lesions, may be seen as extension of the big toe and spreading of the other toes. Moving on then to the sensory examination, which you'll remember involves assessing the spinothalamic tract and dorsal columns and their corresponding modalities. Again, as with revising myotomes for the motor exam, it's probably a good idea to recap the dermatomes for the sensory exam. I've tended to remember them with the following memory aids. So L1 is the inguinal region at the very top of the medial thigh. So the number one looks like an eye, an eye for inguinal, right? L3 corresponds to the medial aspect of the knee and the number three rhymes with knee. L5 corresponds to the big toe, where L5 can be thought of as the largest of the five toes. And S1 corresponds to the area over the little toe, where S1 stands for the smallest one. Did that even help? Have I just confused you more than you already were? Assess each of the dermatomes comparing one side with the other using first a wisp of cotton wool to assess light touch in the dorsal columns, and then a neurotip to assess pain sensation in the spinothalamic pathway. Remember, vibration sense may be assessed by placing the tuning fork at the most distal joint, so the interphalangeal joints, and work your way more proximally if impaired. And proprioception may be assessed by moving the patient's big toe either up or down and asking them to tell you which way you're moving it. So if you recall, there were a couple of special tests of coordination which we spoke about in the upper limb exam, namely the finger-to-nose test and checking for dysdiodocokinesia. In the lower limb exam, coordination may be assessed by asking the patient to perform the heel-shin test. Ask the patient to place their right heel against the lateral aspect of their left knee. Ask them to run their right heel along their shin in a straight line, and then to return their heel to their knee. Get them to do this a few times as smoothly as they can and repeat for the other side. Impaired coordination or dysmetria is suggestive of ipsilateral cerebellar pathology. And there you have it, the lower limb neurological examination. As before, wash your hands and thank the patient and let them get dressed and prepare to present your summary. An example summary might be something like, today I performed a lower limb neurological examination on Mr. John Smith a 58-year-old gentleman. Mr. Smith appeared generally comfortable at rest, however, he was noted to have had a right-sided foot drop. On examination, Mr. Smith had impaired dorsiflexion and big toe extension on the right side, 
as well as loss of sensation over the dorsum of the right foot. These findings are consistent with a right common perineal nerve lesion. To complete my examination, I would like to examine the upper limbs and cranial nerves and also take a thorough history, inquiring particularly about any recent trauma to the knee or fibula. I could consider further neurological testing such as electromyography or nerve conduction studies and neuroimaging such as an MRI. We'll finish then by touching on the cerebellar examination. Although the astute listener will note that many of the tests we've spoken about already, such as assessing gait and checking coordination, may throw up signs suggestive of cerebellar disease. Nevertheless, a specific cerebellar exam may often come up as an OSCE station. The mnemonic DANISH is useful to help you remember the components of the cerebellar exam. This stands for dystiodocokinesia, ataxia, nystagmus, intention tremor, slurred or scanning speech, and hypotonia. Remember again to start with an inspection, commenting for example on abnormalities in posture or any walking aids the patient may be using. Perform a gait and heel to toe assessment and look for the presence of a broad-based ataxic gait and any difficulties in turning, which may be suggestive of a cerebellar pathology. You should carry out Romberg's test, although remember in the case of cerebellar disease, you're looking for swaying suggestive of truncal ataxia and not unsteadiness. Cerebellar lesions may cause ataxic dysarthria, manifesting as slurred or scanning or staccato speech. Ask the patient to repeat the phrases baby hippopotamus and British constitution and observe for any slurring of their speech. Next, look for the presence of nystagmus. Ask them to keep their head steady and to follow your finger with their eyes as you draw an H pattern in the air. Look for multiple beats of nystagmus although a few beats, particularly at the extremes of gaze, is normal and termed physiological nystagmus. Also inquire if they have any double vision during this, which may be suggestive of strabismus and is seen in certain cerebellar syndromes. Another gaze disturbance seen in cerebellar lesions is dysmetric saccades. Place your hand about 30 centimeters out to the side of your head. Ask the patient to focus initially on your nose before rapidly shifting their gaze to your hand. Normally, eye movement should be quick and accurate. In the context of cerebellar lesions, patients may overshoot beyond the target and then exhibit a secondary correction back onto the target, known as dysmetric saccades. The main tests of the upper limb include the finger-to-nose test, with the presence of an intention tremor and pass pointing suggestive of cerebellar disease, and dystiodocokinesia. For a recap on how to perform the finger-to-nose test or look for dystiodocokinesia, please check out the previous episode on the upper limb exam. Another useful test to perform is to look for the rebound phenomenon, which involves asking the patient to stretch their arms out in front of them with their palms facing the ceiling. Push down on each of the patient's forearms in turn with your hand whilst asking them to resist. As you take your hand off the patient's arm, you should expect their arm to move a short distance upwards before the antagonist muscles contract and the arm returns to its original position known as a normal rebound phenomenon. The rebound phenomenon may be exaggerated in the context of spasticity and upper motor neuron lesions, or absent altogether in the case of cerebellar disease. You should also assess the tone in both the upper and lower limbs, with reduced tone, or hypotonia, suggestive of ipsilateral cerebellar disease. Similarly, check the tendon reflexes, especially the knee-jerk reflex. Cerebellar disease may present with pendular reflexes, which are less brisk and slower in their rise and fall. 
In reality, both hypotonia and pendular reflexes are subjective and of uncertain clinical significance, but you should make it a point to examine them all the same for the sake of your exam. And lastly, just as you've done the finger-to-nose test and looked for dysdiadocokinesia in the upper limbs, remember to perform the heel-to-shin test to look for impaired coordination in the lower limbs. So that brings us to the end of this episode on the lower limb neurological examination and cerebellar examination. We've covered the components of both exams and the special tests you can perform and their clinical significance. I hope it's been a useful recap and you feel better equipped to go out there and put your skills to the test. Remember, the only way to really become slick at the OSCE examinations is to practice a bunch of times with a bunch of different people until it becomes muscle memory. The more the steps become like second nature to you, the less you have to worry about what the next part of the dance is, and you can instead focus your energies on piecing together the signs you've elicited and what the likely diagnosis is. Thanks as always for tuning in. Please remember to subscribe to our show, check out our Instagram page and website for all the latest updates, and share with your friends and family. We welcome your feedback and suggestions, and look forward to bringing you more episodes. Thanks. Thanks.